a woman named Galena. And when we arrived in the city, there was just a very dark, by dark I mean a depressed atmosphere. You couldn't get eye contact with people on the streets. You would travel on the bus or the tram and smile at somebody and there would be no return. They would quickly shift their eyes and look away. These people had been oppressed for a long time and there was a very strong sense that they were depressed collectively. If you can imagine a corporate depression over a city, that's what we were experiencing there. But there was this one happy lady and her name was Galena. I was doing meetings there, and night by night, after I was done speaking, she would come to me, and we would visit, and one of the things, in fact, the thing that she brought up over and over and over again was her son. And she just had this incredible mother's love for her son, like nothing I had ever seen. It was just beautiful to behold. Everything she had to say about this guy was just amazing, so much so that I felt like I really want to meet him. Uh, does, he, does he live somewhere around here, I said to Galena? Could, could he come to the meetings? Could I go visit him? Is there any chance that we could meet? And uh, she became herself a little bit depressed in her appearance. And she dropped her eyes and she said, no, that won't be possible. And I said, well, if, if he can't come here, maybe I could go visit him at his home. I'd love to meet this amazing person that she's describing. And then she, she said, well, actually, he's in prison. And I said, oh. And I, and I could sense that this was an uncomfortable subject, as you would imagine it would be. So I didn't want to pry, but she could see my curiosity. And so she divulged a little bit more. She said, actually, he's serving a life sentence. So no, you can't, you can't meet him. He can't come. So I'm thinking in my mind at that point exactly what you would be thinking, a life sentence. There are only a few crimes for which you would serve a life sentence. This had to be pretty serious. But again, I didn't want to pry, so I'm, I'm trying to exert self-control, but there's a very, very uncomfortable silence now in our conversation, and she can sense that, that I'm curious. And so she goes a step further, and, and she says these words to me that blew my mind. She said, he murdered my son. And now I'm thinking exactly what you would be thinking right now. She is talking about her son who murdered her son. These were brothers. That's what I'm thinking. And now I realize this is really painful and I don't want to dig any deeper. And, and, and so something comes out of my mouth that is a little bit awkward. And, and I say something like, wow, that, that must be very painful. And she says, you have no idea. And as I probe a little bit deeper regarding the murder of her son by her son, I say that must be very difficult for you as a mother to have one of your sons murder. And before I can even complete the sentence, she says, no, 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 I haven't made myself clear. She says, this is the man that murdered my son. And now I've claimed him as my son. And now I'm thinking, maybe this woman is not mentally stable because I don't know about you, but I don't know if you're thinking what I'm thinking, but I'm thinking this isn't the kind of person you want to claim as your son. So I probed a little bit deeper. I said, Galena, I I said, what do you mean? You claimed him as your son. She said, well, he murdered my son and I decided that he was going to be my son. I said, well, how did he feel about that? And she said, well, I went to visit. He would curse at me and call me names and tell me never to visit again. But I kept visiting, bringing him food. I even brought board games and asked him if he wanted to play. I'm thinking, she's out of her mind. And she said, well, my daughter Inessa is very angry about this and she says that I shouldn't have anything to do with him. I said, well, Galena, he's calling you names. He doesn't want you to visit. You keep visiting. What's going on here? And this is what she said to me. She said, I knew he hated me because he thought I hated him. 
And that was because he hated himself because of the crime he committed against me. She went further. But I also knew, now check this out, but I also knew that in time he would see that I did not hate him and he would accept me as his mother and eventually he did. In fact, she said, now we are the best of friends. He is a precious boy. And I'm thinking, wow, this is either sanity at a higher level than I've ever encountered, or this is insanity, one or the other. This is either a very high level of relational genius, or this is absolutely crazy. That's what I'm thinking to myself. So I say to her, Galena, so he's a precious boy. He's your son. How did that come about? She said, I just kept visiting and The day came when he stopped cursing and he fell to the ground and he began to weep and he began to apologize and the power of his sin was broken by my love. Wow, I was blown away. Galena was exerting what I'm going to call the relational dynamic of faith. She was exerting the relational dynamic of faith. In other words, she understood somehow, I don't know how she understood this, but she understood that if you cast a vision for someone above where they are, that they just may begin to aspire to it. So she kept treating him as if he were a precious boy. And he began to want to be what she envisioned for him. Now she brings him food and they play board games together. I said, Galena, weren't you angry? She said, angry? She said, that word doesn't do it justice at all. I was furious. I was enraged. She said, didn't you listen to me? He murdered my son. Angry? Of course I was angry. I said, well, did you press charges? She said, yes. I said, did you testify? She said, yes. He belongs in prison. She said, but what's that got to do with it? I still love him. He should be in prison, and I still love him. Yes, I'm angry, and I still Love him. What an incredible balance or kind of mix or equilibrium of justice and mercy. What a beautiful combination of holding somebody accountable and at the same time overwhelming them with love. Well, something like that is going on in the gospel. This is one of the most cryptic, strange, odd statements you will read anywhere in the Bible. This is in Romans chapter 4, and this is the Apostle Paul, and the immediate context is he's telling the story of Abraham. We'll talk more about Abraham in a moment, but Paul is explaining something about the way that God chose to relate to Abraham. So the text says, as Paul summarizes this relational dynamic, It says that God calls those things which do not exist as though they do. Now, that's very strange sounding to me. At least it was when I first read it. When a human being says something is true when it's not, we call that lying. But but God's word is on a different level. It's in a different category altogether. When God says something, there's power in what God says to actualize the thing that God envisions. And that's what Paul is trying to explain to us here. He's essentially saying that God's love is so powerful that when God speaks his love over us, when God relates to us, not according to what we deserve, but according to what he wants us to be, that we will begin to want to rise to God's vision of us. Now, anybody here who has children understand how this works on the human level. 
If, if, if you're raising children, you can raise children in one of two ways. You can raise children with faith or doubt. You can raise children by affirming the good things that you see in them and to some significant degree overlooking, not that you're not holding them accountable, but for every one correction, there are 10 affirmations. And you can raise the child with words like, you're incredible. I can't believe I'm so privileged that you're my son, that you're my daughter. You're beautiful. You're smart. You're going to amount to something amazing. I can't wait to see the person that you're going to grow up into. I totally love you. And you can just feel the shoulders lifting and and the spirit rising in the child. Or you can raise a child saying, you know what? You can't do anything right. Every time I ask you to do anything, I have to do it over just to get it right. You're stupid. You're not going to ever amount to anything. And you can sense the spirit shrinking in that child-raising technique. Until until your negativity becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy over the child. I met a guy one time, kid you not, no exaggeration, He was 35 years old, and he had made a complete mess and wreck of his life by pursuing all kinds of different addictions. He couldn't maintain a job. He was just a mess. When he was 35 years old, somebody said, hey, this is an interesting personality test. And he took the personality test, and he thought, that's weird. The personality test was telling him that he would be good at some things. But he could never imagine that because his father told him that he would never amount to anything. And he took another test. He took an IQ test, and his IQ was above 130. This guy, 35 years of age, had believed the negativity that had been spoken over him and had descended to meet that low opinion. What scripture is describing here is the relational dynamic of faith on a scale, on a level that is applicable to all of us. When the scripture says here that God calls those things which do not exist as though they do, the context is this. God is calling you and me righteous even though he knows we're not. He is relating to us as if we are innocent even though he knows we're guilty. And what's happening in this dynamic is that we then, in turn, begin to aspire to innocence. When we're related to with love, we begin to want to be the thing that God envisions us to be. All relationships work this way. People tend to want to be what you believe They are, especially if you're an authority figure over those individuals in a place of employment, in child raising. This dynamic works in marriage. I do a lot of marriage counseling, and one time after another over the years, I have been in situations where one of the spouses was completely devoted to the relationship, completely devoted to faithfulness in the relationship and fidelity, but one of the individuals in the relationship kept exerting suspicion on the relationship, kept assuming that something bad was going to happen, and by golly, it's your, you're the one that's going to do it. You're going to blow this. Our marriage isn't going to last because of you. And one relationship after another, I have watched disintegrate under the heavy weight of suspicion. There's another way to do marriage, and that is to assume the best. To assume that, man, you, not only am I head over heels in love with you, you really dig me, don't you? Man, you're lucky to be married to me. This is incredible what you got going on here. Um, I would hate to be in a situation where you were married to someone else. You are blessed and I know you love me. I know you love me. 
speaking faith, speaking confidence. So God relates to us as if we're righteous, even though he knows we're not. He relates to us as if we're innocent, even though he knows we're guilty, not to confirm us in our unrighteousness and guilt, but in order to cast a vision for us by his love that we begin to want to aspire to. So in Paul's logic, in Paul's inner reasoning regarding the gospel, in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, okay, this is God's posture. This is the way God relates. God calls those things which do not exist as though they do. He calls you righteous, you're not. He calls you innocent, you're not. And then in chapter 6, he basically says, now you and I, we need to get with the program. We need to begin relating to ourselves the way God relates to us. So he says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Essentially, what he's saying here is, is regard yourself. That's the word reckon. Consider, regard yourself as dead to sin but alive to God. Don't argue with the gospel. Don't say, well, no, no, I'm not dead to sin. Actually, I love sin. I want to sin. Don't even voice that interest. Now, you may think, well, I just need to be honest. I just need to tell the truth. No, on this occasion, lie to yourself. Tell yourself a gospel fiction so that it may become reality for you. Regard yourself as dead to sin. And alive to God. Say things to yourself like, I love Jesus because he loves me. I'm committed to him. Does that mean you won't fail? No, you will fail and your faith, this is the relational dynamic of faith, your faith will then again rise to the vision that God has for you. This is remarkable how this works. Paul reasons it through in 2 Corinthians with remarkable language. Follow his, his, his thought process here. He says, the love of Christ compels us. The word compel there doesn't mean coerce or, or manipulate or force. It means to actuate. It means to motivate. It means to propel So he's essentially saying the love of Christ is an energizing force in my experience. It causes me to do things that otherwise I would never be willing or able to do. That's his his idea here in the context. The love of Christ is the actuating, energizing, empowering force, he says here, because we judge thus. The word judge here is like the word discern. It's not judge as in condemn, or judgmentalism, it's judge, if I were to say to you, hey, I know a girl named Frank, and she has good judgment. I mean discernment. By the way, her name's not Frank, her name's Frankie. And so, we judge thus, we discern thus. What do we discern? Now, follow his reasoning here, don't miss a line of this. That if one died for all, that's Jesus dying for all. That's the universal gift of the Son of God to the world. That's the universal embrace of God's love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For the world. Now, it's interesting. We know verse 16, but what about verse 17? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So, so in other words, grammatically, in John 3, 16 and 17, the love that is spoken of in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the love in verse 16 is defined by the absence of condemnation in verse 17. So we might call this a non-condemnatory love. It's a way of relating. It's a relational dynamic. It's Jesus coming into the world and very, very clearly seeing our guilt and sin, but not relating to us according to our guilt, but rather relating to us as if we're innocent. It's a very powerful way of relating. It is relational genius. God himself, before human beings in the last 10 years were ever talking about emotional genius, God is an emotional genius. God exerts the power of his love over us in order to produce a returning reciprocal current of love 
back to himself and out toward one another. So he says, we judge thus, that if one died for all, then what does Paul conclude? Then all died. Now, right there, again, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance for us because we don't relate to this kind of uh, thinking and speaking unless we pause to remember something. That in biblical times, as well as in our time, there was the individual level of relationship and there's the corporate level of relationship. For example, if I said to you, we Americans are in talks politically with China, you would immediately translate in your mind to know that I'm not saying that any one of us individually are over there sitting at the table having political conversations. You would know immediately that what I mean by we Americans are talking with China politically, that we have a representative called an ambassador who is there speaking on our behalf. And hopefully he's not a knucklehead, but that's a different subject. So we are corporately represented, right, by an individual. In biblical thinking, Jesus is the corporate representative head of the human race. He is, according to Paul in another passage, the second Adam, the last Adam. In other words, he's a new way to do life. He's a new human. He is, in fact, the new man. He is the new specimen of humanity. He is, to use a golf term, he is the mulligan. He is the, he is the redo. He's the do-over. He's the one who took our very humanity upon himself and succeeded where Adam failed. He's the second Adam. And as such, he's the representative head of the human race. So whatever he does, he's not doing as an individual. He's doing as us. He's acting on our behalf in a representative role as an ambassador. So when Paul says that Jesus died for all, therefore all died, he means that at Calvary, there is a representative sense in which the whole human race was judged and crucified. But then he rose again, didn't he? So when he rose again, humanity rose with him and ascended to the right hand of the Father to the victory position. So then in Paul's writings, you have this idea where Paul says, we, again, corporate language, we are seated together in Christ in heavenly places. To which in our very individualistic, modern kind of thinking, we might say, what are you talking about, Paul? I'm not there. And Paul would say, yes, you are. You would say, no, I'm not. He would say, yes, you are. You would say, Paul, I'm not there. Paul would say, you are there in a representative sense in Jesus. Right now, look at it this way. Think about it this way. The brilliance of the incarnation is simply that God in Christ became human As a human being, he lived an utterly perfect, selfless life of love, representatively for you and me, to set the bar, to cast a vision, to re-script the old tapes of guilt and shame and unrighteousness. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life of other-centered love. Then he died at Calvary as a representative of the human race. And then he, as a human being, as much a human being as he went into the grave, rose from the grave and ascended, sat down at the throne of the universe so that we can say right now, without any exaggeration, with complete theological truthfulness, we can say right now that an actual specimen of the human race occupies the throne of the universe. So that hypothetically, hypothetically, now this isn't true, But it could be true hypothetically. Hypothetically, if all of us said no to the plan of salvation, are you following me? Humanity is still saved in Christ. An actual human being passed through the entire process and ascended to the throne of the universe. And now, faith is what the Bible says speaks of as the identification process. 
In other words, faith is me, that's you and me, identifying with Jesus as our new representative head. And and when the Bible says that he lived a perfect life, our response to that is a response of identification, a response of faith, a response of, yes, amen, I identify with him. Not that other Adam that blew it. I identify with this Adam. He's my representative head. The love that I see in him is the love I want in me. I want to live like him, not like the other guy. That's biblical faith. It's identification. It is me, with my own heart and mind, experientially choosing to identify with Jesus as my new Adam, as my new representative head. And then he dies on the cross, and I say to that, yes, amen. I am, Galatians 2.20, all this language starts to make sense when you get this concept. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave, my, gave himself for me. Really, Paul? Yes, really. I am crucified with Christ. So I look at Calvary and I say, amen. That is my death in his death. And when he is resurrected, Paul tells us in Galatians and in Romans, very clearly, Paul fleshes this idea idea out. When he's resurrected, his resurrection is my resurrection. And by faith and identification, I say, yep, that's me in Christ. And he ascends to the right hand of the Father and occupies the throne of the universe as a human being. So that right now, Jesus and the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and all the angels of heaven are essentially engaged in the process of wooing and drawing and coaching you and me into the place where we gradually, incrementally identify with Christ and catch up to where he is. So that objectively, he's there now for us as our representative, and someday, by God's grace, we'll actually experientially be there occupying throne status with him. That's the entire process of the plan of salvation as it's articulated in Scripture. So when Paul says the love of Christ compels us, it actuates, it energizes me, it energizes me how or by what means? What is it about this love that is so energizing, so empowering? Well, I look at this love and I see that it is a universal, unconditional love for every member of the human race and it includes me. Suddenly, all judgment and condemnation dissipates. It's gone. Because I see God relating to me as if I've never sinned, so then I begin to relate to other people according to their potential rather than according to their failures. So it changes every relational dynamic. And he goes on and he essentially says this. And that he died for all, Jesus died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for who? For themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There is the objective fact of Jesus' life and death and resurrection bleeding over into my personal experience. I begin to love like he loves by the process of identification. But here's the kicker. The next thing Paul says is absolutely mind-blowing. Therefore, conclusion, because of this love, For all, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, the word flesh here is carne, from which we get words like carnal. In other words, Paul is saying here, because of the love that we see in Jesus for everyone, when we get that, when we wrap our minds and our emotions around that quality of love for us individually and for the whole world, we stop regarding people according to their natural fallen carnality. We begin to relate to people according to their potential. It changes everything. It changes the way you see the lady at the grocery checkout that you're paying for your groceries. It changes the way you see the person who's passing you on the freeway in an angry huff. It changes the way you relate to people who fail you in your actual everyday life, in your family dynamics and in your church dynamics and in your community dynamics. Suddenly you realize 
that there is no legitimate claim to condemnation for any human being against another human being. And to the degree that I refuse to forgive those who fail me, I burn the bridge over which I myself must pass someday psychologically. The day is going to come when I see myself as I really am because the only way I can live in judgment and condemnation toward anybody who fails me is to be under the illusion that I'm actually better than them. Morally. But the day is coming when I will look into the mirror and I will see myself as I really am and if I have built a psychological and emotional and relational pattern of unforgiveness... I will have circumvented my own mental process so that I can't see God's forgiveness for me. And all I'll be able to do in my sin and failure and guilt is sink under its weight with the idea that God couldn't possibly forgive me for that. Why why do I conclude that God couldn't possibly forgive me? Well, because I have built a pattern of not forgiving others. And so I have a picture of God's character that doesn't allow for love. It doesn't allow for forgiveness. This is, by the way, what Jesus meant when he said, if you do not forgive others, their trespasses against you, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Jesus is not describing a tit-for-tat attitude in God. He's not saying if you are unforgiving and you refuse and you're hard and you're cold, God will reflect your hardness and unforgiveness back to you. He's not saying, if you're ugly, God will be ugly to you. He's describing a psychological reality. And the psychological reality is, Jesus is saying, if you refuse to forgive others, you won't be able to perceive God's forgiveness for you when you need it. You cut off your capacity for grasping mercy as the appropriate relational dynamic when someone fails. Your hardness toward others builds up a picture of God in which you can only imagine God as hard. So this is Paul's thinking. This is how he's reasoning. And he goes a step further, lest we misunderstand, this is exactly what he has in mind. He he says, God was in Christ. Now watch this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. At that point, we pause and say, okay, how? What's the mean? What means? What's the mechanism? Okay, God reconciled the world. That's universal language again. That's every man, woman, and child. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. Okay, Paul, how? How did he do that? Is is this some kind of capricious, arbitrary act in, in the books of heaven? Does he just write something in red ink over something in black ink? Or is there a relational dynamic to this? Paul is all about the relational dynamic. So he says, listen, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and now he explains how. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. The NIV says it this way, not counting men's sins against them. In other words, the way that God reconciles us to himself is by not regarding us according to what we deserve. Now, we can do a little thought experiment to demonstrate why this is vital in the gospel. I want you to imagine right now, we won't spend too much time imagining this because it is the kind of stuff that, that insanity is made of. So you don't want to hang out here too long. We'll just, we'll just kind of dip in and pull out, Okay. I want you to imagine what it would be like right this moment if God right this moment were to start treating you and me precisely how we deserve. What if right now God were to begin relating to you and me the way we relate to others who fail us? What if God were to treat the whole world with the same kind of attitude, for example, that you encounter on talk radio, or in the political climate right now in America, when people stand in podiums, and rather than talking about what good they will do, they spend 90% of the time talking about how bad the other person is and doing character assassination. What if God were to relate to us the way we relate to one another? 
That would be a scary moment. There's this text that many of us know. You know that one in, in uh, Malachi where it says, I am the Lord, I change not. You remember that text? Those of you who are here this morning who are Seventh-day Adventists, you know that text is one that we sometimes employ in order to say, see, see, God doesn't change, so his law hasn't changed. So the law is not done away with, it's still in force, etc. By the way, if you're here this morning, you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, welcome, we're glad you're here sharing this time with us. That was just a little bit of in-house for those who are Seventh-day Adventists. Okay, so you know that verse, right? I am the Lord, I change not. But you know what the context, you know what the next words are. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. What did he just say? He just said, lucky for you that I don't change because if I did change, you would be vapor. I would, you would be, what do we call that as Seventh-day Adventists? Annihilationism. You would be annihilated. If God were to change, now he doesn't change. So actually that verse is a good news verse. And you can do this psychological exercise on yourself or with anybody else. If I said to you, without any background, we haven't been talking at all, at all, at all, and you and I just met and I said to you, hey, I have a message for you from God. He will never, ever change his position toward you. You're either going to hear that as good news or bad news. You're either going to say, bummer, (laughs) and go into terror because your default position is that God is against you. You're already standing in a position where you imagine that God's attitude and posture is one of condemnation. Therefore, when I say to you, God will never change his posture toward you, you're like, ah, no, please, I hope he'll change. I say, no, he won't. No, he will never stop loving you. He will never change. A parallel text to the Malachi text, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed, would be James chapter 1, verse 17. Check this out. This is one of the best verses in the Bible. This is where God says, or James says, of God, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, not even a shadow of turning. That text is saying God is good and he won't stop. God is good and he always will be. God just keeps pouring out grace and he's never going to stop. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the good news. Now you say, well, that's not good news. I had somebody come to me recently and say, Ty, that's a dangerous thing you're talking about there because then people will feel at liberty to sin. To which I responded and said, it doesn't have that effect on me at all. The fact that my wife loves me so devotedly doesn't produce in me the desire to violate the relationship. It actually raises my motivation and energy and desire to be everything she wants me to be. So if you interpret grace as an excuse for sin, you don't get grace. You need to pause back up to square one and really understand what grace is. Grace is an undeserved love that produces a response of returning love. So there is no danger of Speaking of God's love and God's grace too much or taking it to an extreme. There's one subject you can't exaggerate. Every other subject you can. If you're like my daughter and you're in a public place and and you come back and you say there were 50 million people in the bathroom, I know there weren't. That's my daughter, chronic exaggerator. Okay, there weren't 50 million people. There were 20 people. You had to wait a few minutes. Calm down. Okay, Everything can be exaggerated, but not God's love. God's love, you can't bring enough language to it to build it up into something beyond what it is. It's extravagant. It's opulent. It's beautiful. It's extreme. God's love is so constant that there is literally nothing you and I could ever do to cause God to alter his position toward us. 
In fact, according to scripture, if a human being against all of that love chooses persistently to ruin their own soul and be eternally lost, even those who are eternally lost will go to their eternal demise being loved by God. And so Paul's reasoning is fabulous. It changes everything. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by not counting our sins against us. And what has he done? He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. In other words, this is being transmitted. This way of relating is being transmitted. God is essentially saying, I'm relating to you as if you're innocent when you're not. I would like for you to relate to one another that way. I would like for you to relate to others as if there's something they're not, not in order to confirm them in their sin, but in order to give them something to aspire to. So it's basically like this. Here is the relational dynamic of the gospel. The way I see God seeing me. Did you catch that? The way I see God seeing, not the way I see God, full stop. No, the way I see God seeing me. The way God regards me, the way God relates to me will determine the way I see myself. Which in turn will determine the way I see and relate to others. This is the thing that God in the gospel is trying to pull off. And Romans chapter 10 and verse 8 refers to this whole message, this thing called the gospel, the word of God as the word of faith, which we preach. The word of faith. Now, reason this through with me. If the Bible, if the gospel is called the word of faith and it's God's word, the Bible is God's word, and it's called the word of faith, whose faith is it that is being exerted, that is on display in scripture? If it's God's word and it's the word of faith, whose faith are we encountering in scripture? God's faith. God's faith moving which direction? Toward us. Now, you may find it more comfortable to call it faithfulness. But faithfulness is precisely faith. It is to be full of faith. It is God relating to you and me according to our potential, not according to what we are in ourselves. The Bible is, well, let's first say what the Bible is not. The Bible is not a systematic theology textbook. You can derive systematic theology from the Bible, and theologians need to do that for certain purposes. But the theologian that is truly enlightened understands that he is using the text to derive and to construct systematic theology, but he knows that the Bible itself, in its natural organic flow, is not a systematic textbook. It's not, it's not an encyclopedia. The Bible isn't a list of propositional statements and facts. The Bible is not an apologetic. It's not in defense mode against those who don't believe. You'll not find anywhere in the Bible, for example, where there is a systematic argument against atheism. The Bible doesn't care about that. The Bible goes to a whole different level by presenting a picture of God that even the atheist would find beautiful and believable. So it leapfrogs over trying to argue in favor of the existence of God. Wait a minute. If I argue in favor of the existence of God with somebody who says I'm an atheist, I may be trying to argue them into believing in the existence of a monster if the thing they don't believe in is monstrous. I was getting my hair cut recently, and we were having a discussion about the political climate in the United States, and the girl cutting my hair, she said... You don't believe in God, do you? And just as I was about to say, well, yes, I do, I stopped myself and I said, wait a minute, this is all going on in my mind silently. If I say yes, I may be saying yes to something that in her mind is something I wouldn't want to say yes to. So I backed him and I said, well, wait a minute. She said, you don't believe in God, do you? I said, well, describe for me the God you don't believe in and then I'll tell you. So she then began to articulate this horrific picture, worse than Dagon, worse than Molech, worse than Zeus, 
and all the other imaginary fictions that have been spun by demons down through history, she began to describe a God that, in fact, I don't believe in. So when she got done describing this God, I said, nah, I don't believe in God. We paused, and she kept cutting. And I said, but, but, but would you mind if I described you another option? She said, like what? And I began to fill out the silhouette of God, the word, the concept God. I began to fill in with features and colors. I began to describe a character. And I said, what if God's like that? And she said, well, I could believe that. I said, okay, how much do I owe you? Paid and left. Suddenly she was a believer in the thing I was a believer in because it was intellectually tenable, because it was emotionally appealing. So, so the Bible is not a systematic textbook. The Bible is not an apologetic. The Bible is not a proof text manual. You can use it that way, and sometimes that's necessary. But here's what the Bible actually is. The Bible is a faith text, just like Paul said. It is the word of faith. The Bible is a faith text. It is God exerting faith over you and me. The way a parent raises children with faith rather than doubt. You're incredible. I love you. You're going to amount to something great. Not, you can't do anything right. I can't believe that you're my son. God speaks faith in Scripture over us. Watch where this goes. The Bible is a rescripting therapy. The Bible is a description of what you may be and what God envisions you to be in Christ. It's a whole new script. The Bible is a projected vision. It's God relating to you and me according to our potential, not according to our sin. And it's a new storyline. It's a new narrative. It's a new way to be human. You look at Jesus and you say, that's the real deal. That's the kind of human I want to be. I want to be a human that loves like that, that relates like that. It's a new story. It's a new narrative for us to identify with. And this is basically what's going on in in all of us all the time as human beings. Whether you believe in God or not, this is, everyone is going through this process every nanosecond of every day. Our thoughts feed, shape, mold our feelings, and our feelings, our emotions, from the root word motion, to emote, move us to actions, to behaviors. And then those behaviors, when we engage in them, confirm our thoughts. Now, at the thoughts level, even if your thoughts are untrue, even if they are wrong thoughts, behaviors exerted in the direction of lies will make you believe the lies more and more firmly. This is why there are people that you will meet if you get deep with anybody, you will discover human beings who are what we call pathological liars. And most of the time that means that they don't even know they're lying because they have spun such webs of deception that they actually believe the things they're saying actually happened when in fact none of it happened. Because actions exerted in the direction of a lie, confirm the lie in the human mind. Now, we can focus our attention on the actions level for what is sometimes called behavior modification. You can just give people good advice. Hey, that's wrong what you're doing. I suggest you stop it. And here are four ways that you can try your hardest to stop it and come and see me in two weeks. We'll talk again. Change your behavior. Change your ways. Every religion in the world is behavior modification. Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism, all the isms are all an assessment of the failure of humanity and behavior advice. Good advice. The Bible's different. The Bible isn't offering good advice. It's offering good news about historical realities that cast new vision that create new realities by virtue of the relational dynamic of faith and love. You can focus on behavior modification and you will fail. You may have a longer willpower 
than some others. If you're of good German stock, for example, you may be able to go your whole life being a miserable Christian, failing secretly, but never ever having the courage to exit the pew and become an unbeliever. So you just go through the motions for life. But then you could focus, oops, excuse me, you could focus, where is it? On the feelings level. You could, you, you, you could join a religious community that, that focuses on orchestrating feelings. You all feel that, don't you? Let's all raise our hands together. Close your eyes. Let's sway. To which I find myself responding and saying, no, preach something beautiful to me. And whatever spontaneously comes out of me, and if that means raising my hands, I'll raise my hands. If that means saying amen, I'll say amen. But you're not going to orchestrate my emotions. I was recently doing meetings in Germany. They don't say a peep. They certainly don't raise their hands. This is... 5,000 young people, young adults, the whole time you're preaching, you get the distinct impression that they're not there. (laughs) And then suddenly at the end, when you say, hey, anybody who, you give the weakest altar call you can imagine, you say, anybody who kind of wants to maybe accept these ideas, would you come forward and 500 young people storm the stage? Because the whole time they were processing the way they process. We shouldn't be trying to orchestrate things with people emotionally. We should let people spontaneously respond to God the way they respond to God. For some people, that may be no raised hands, but quiet tears. For another person, that may be going home and staying up all night thinking about how incredible these new ideas are and being blown away and just quietly giving my heart to Jesus on a deeper level. We don't need to be trying to orchestrate people's emotions, but I don't want to go on about that. Then there's the thoughts level. That's where we need to focus. We all need thought replacement therapy, all of us. We all need a new way of processing a cogent cognitive picture of God. We all need to see God as God really is, and it will produce the appropriate emotional response and actions that will confirm those beautiful thoughts. Our minds need to be disabused of ugly, horrific pictures of God that have been spun by religion and forced on the world. Our world needs to see God for who God really is, and when you see God for who God really is, God is irresistibly attractive. God is beautiful. God is love, and God loves you individually, as if there were not another person in all the universe to love. Now, very quickly, because I've already used up all my time, are you going to give me the evil eye? Do I have to end right this minute? Okay, so this is what we're describing here in Paul's thinking. What we're describing here could be described as the objective and the subjective dimensions of the gospel. The objective part is the facts as they are. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus lived a perfectly selfless life as your representative head. He died, he resurrected, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Wow, amazing. What a display of incredible love. And there's nothing you and I can do to reverse those actions. God did all of that for you before you even knew you needed it and definitely before you even had an interest in contemplating the ramifications. Those are the objective historical facts of the gospel. This is what Paul calls in Romans 3, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Done deal, accomplished fact, unalterable. Now, you and I can't do anything to alter the facts. But the subjective part is that we do have the possibility of experientially agreeing with the facts. Or say it this way, faith does not manufacture any new data in the gospel. That's called merit. That's me doing something to get God to be good to me. That's God the vending machine. You put in the appropriate coinage and you get what you want from him. That's paganism. That's not the gospel. There's nothing you and I can do to change the historical facts of the case. Faith doesn't manufacture new facts. Faith apprehends, believes, says yes to, and experiences what is. And what I'm telling you is that the gospel says what is is the love of God. 
for your soul personally. So think of people like this guy, Abraham. These are the heroes in the Bible. In themselves, in themselves. What was, what was Abraham, if you just read his story? Dude was a liar and a coward. He said to his wife, Sarah, you're pretty hot. We're going to go meet this king, this pharaoh, and you better lie and say you're my sister because otherwise he's going to kill me to get you. So let's pretend like we're siblings. And silly Sarah's like, okay. And the whole story plays out. It's ridiculous. And this is the guy God chooses. Okay? From our assessment, Abraham's a liar and a coward. What are some other heroes in the Bible? There's Isaac, the dysfunctional father, who favors Esau and thereby messes up psychologically his son Jacob and produces a manipulator. There's Isaac. There's Jacob, who was a manipulator and a thief. I don't have time to tell you all their stories. Look them up. There's Moses. Oh, great Moses. Moses was a murderer turned coward. And then there's David, who was a murderer and an adulterer. What? These are the, these are the heroes. There's Peter. He was a loudmouth hothead. And then there's John and James. They were violent, merciless thugs. These are the guys who said, that city, that town doesn't want you to come through. We, say, we have a great suggestion, Jesus. We say we bring fire and just burn them all up. That's James and John. These are the people to whom Jesus said, hey, you're with me. You're with me. And then there's Matthew. He was the worst of all. <laughs> He was a tax collector. He was an IRS agent. What a guy. What a guy. And then there's Paul, <clears throat> self-righteous, Pharisee, and a murderer. And then there's you and me. Fill in the blank. You know your deep, dark history. You know your secrets. You know what haunts you. You know what looks back at you in the mirror inside your soul. You know what you're self-medicating for. You know what your obsessions and addictions are compensating for. You know, I don't. You know, but somebody else does. God knows you, and here's how God knows you. You are perfectly loved, John 3.16. You are crucified and risen with Christ, Galatians 2.20. You are accepted in the beloved Ephesians 1.6, you are forgiven and redeemed, historical fact in Christ, done deal, Ephesians 1.7. You are, according to Scripture, more than a conqueror, according to Romans 8.37. You may be thinking, no, I'm a, I'm a moral weakling. Well, stop believing that about yourself and reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Change your focus, your vision, shift your focus. You're more than a conqueror. You are enthroned at the right hand of God, Colossians 3, 1. You are in Christ what you are not in yourself. Just shift the entire emotional weight of your dependence onto him and embrace the identity that God has for you and me in Christ. The bottom line is simply this. The gospel teaches us that to be fully known and fully loved simultaneously is the secret of our healing. That's how it works in all relationships. If you want to have a good marriage, that principle is going to have to come into play. You know how it is. You fall in love with someone before you're married and you think, oh my goodness, what symmetrical eyebrows he has. I just love, I just love how she does that with her hair. Oh, she's incredible. Oh, he's amazing, amazing, amazing. And then you get married. And you say, oh my goodness, do you really do that? That's got to stop. No, you can't put a half-eaten plate of food under the bed for two weeks. Not for two days. Stop it. No, you can't let that pile of clothes get bigger and bigger and bigger until we need hazard tape to protect the rest of the family from your pile. No, we're not going to live like this. Now, you're either going to spin out of control by focusing on the negative, or you're going to equalize in the middle. And your character traits and personality traits and his or her character traits and personality traits will begin 
to blend in the middle until you become something together you could never be by yourselves. And that will only happen if you begin to allow love to cover and to compensate for a multitude of failures. I give a marriage seminar. It takes me five hours to give it, five parts. It's ridiculous. This woman came to me one time when I was about on part four, and she said, your material on marriage is too long. She was like 89 years old or something like that. She said, I've been married approximately forever, and I'll give you my marriage seminar in five parts. She said, here's my marriage seminar in five parts. Give, 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 and forgive. And I said, wow, I've never given my marriage seminar since. That's the bottom line right there. This lady's got it going on. She understands how it works. It's all about giving, giving, giving to the nth degree and then overlooking one another's failures. And that's precisely the relational dynamic that God is employing toward you and me. We may as well begin employing it toward one another. Thank you. That was fun.